the people I'm talking about who are disabled by their pain are disabled for months and years, right? So the acute model of intervention, fixing a fracture or taking out an infected appendix does not apply anymore because the vast majority of these people don't have a fixable cause for their pain that we can discover. However, what happens over time is that people who have pain that lasts for more than a few months of the usual tissue healing period, the thing that really drives people's decisions to become inactive is not the pain that they have right now. It's their prediction of what that activity is going to cost. So what evolves from that is what's known in the literature as the fear of re-injury. And the fear of re-injury, or kinesiophobia is the technical term, is what creates most of the disability. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hi, everyone. Sid Finkelstein here with the SIDCast. And I have a really cool guest today to talk to, Raleigh Hazard. He's not somebody you know. Well, I shouldn't say that because my friend Sabrina actually told me I've got to get Raleigh onto the SIDCast. He said he'd be a great, great guest. And so who is he? He's a physician. He's an internationally respected scholar and researcher. He's an author, a teacher, an inventor, entrepreneur, athlete, and jazz musician. So yeah, he does sound like a SIDCast type of guest, someone who does lots of stuff that just had and has an interesting life. But the timing is particularly good because Raleigh published his book, Talking Back, just about two months ago. And talking back means how to talk to your doctor, especially about back ailments and pain. And he spent, well, 30 years trying to help people deal with pain, deal with their medical problems as a doctor, and has done it in lots of creative and innovative ways. And as I'll mention in a minute, some of his core thinking comes from the narrative medicine mindset, something we talked about with Dr. Rita Sharon in season two. So, you know, in this episode of the SIDCast, we're going to learn Raleigh's story. He's taken a lot of steps along the way, kind of interesting. Yet again, someone else who's crafted a career. And out of that story comes a bunch of interesting lessons that we're all going to want to pay attention to. So here they are in short. Number one, what do you want to be able to do? What do you want to see happen in four months? That's the question Raleigh says every doctor should ask us. And by extension, we should ask and tell to our doctor. If you're having some type of problem or medical issue, the question to ask, the question to think about is, well, what do we want to be able to do? What do we want to see happen in four months? Why four months? Because it's not forever and it's not overnight. So it's a bit more realistic. But the most important thing is just the practical nature of the question. You know, by coincidence, I recently had knee surgery. And I use this question when I talk to my orthopedist, my surgeon. I wanted to explain what I wanted. You know, after knee surgery, you've got some recovery time, but I wanted to be able to get back to cycling, to biking. I want to get back to hiking. I want to get back to walking. I want to be able to take up pickleball. These are not outlandish goals. I've been able to do all of those things, well, except for pickleball, which I've not really done yet, but everybody keeps talking about it, so I want to try it. So it shouldn't be that unreasonable, but that's what I told them. And I think it's important for 
our medical providers to know this is what we want. You know how hard it is, right? We want to take control of our lives as much as we can. And sometimes when the ailment, when the disease is really, really bad, it's limited what we can do, what we could hope for. But it doesn't mean we can't at least try to apply this question. And I'm actually um, going to see my physical therapist very shortly. And I'm going to say exactly the same thing with him. I'm going to say, Kevin, this is what I want. I want to be able to get back on my bike and I want to be able to do it this summer. And I want to go back to hiking and walking and doing all the fun things that I've always done. And I want you to help me do that. It's kind of like a forced clarity. You know, it gets everyone on the same page. It's simple, but it gets everyone on the same page. And it also turns out to be a good motivation for each of us because, you know, now we have a target. I know what I want. I know what I want to accomplish. And I'm really motivated to make that happen. Number two, that very same point on asking the right question is not just relevant for medicine. It's relevant for life. We could ask this question not just in the context of medicine, but it occurs to me, we know we could ask it for work and for our personal lives as well. It's really about setting goals. They'll be different for each of us, and that's fine, so be expected. But the mere fact that we are setting goals gives each of us a little more control over our lives. When you're going in for surgery, there's uncertainty, there's powerlessness, and it could be overwhelming. But sometimes those feelings could occur at work. They could occur in our own everyday lives. And we might just find it difficult to tack consistently in whatever we're doing. But asking that question, here's what I want, here's what I want to see happen. And I'm translating that, you know, it's the kind of an insight that I got as I thought about what Raleigh says in this podcast. We can apply the same logic ourselves. What do we really want? What goals do we have? And put us on track. Now, it is obvious that the idea of setting goals is not a new idea. Pretty much every management book tells you to do that. And it's kind of practical and simple and clear cut. But I want to ask you, how often do you set goals in your everyday life? And how often do you track them? And how often do you see how you're tacking to them and whether they're within reach and how you're motivating yourself? I mean, I think it's really a simple but powerful notion. The application of Raleigh's question to everyday life and to our work lives. And even though I don't think it's revolutionary as an idea, although it probably is more so when it comes to medicine, but I don't think it's revolutionary as an idea when it comes to our work lives, we still don't usually do it. Most of the time, by the way, goals are imposed on us. I don't like anything to be imposed on me. Maybe that's why I ended up being a professor. You know, you don't, you don't really have a boss when you're a professor. I want to decide what I want, then I want to go for it. And that's empowering and that's exciting. And I think that's important. Number three, this is a small insight, but a pretty important one that Raleigh talks about. Fear of re-injury is the real reason most people don't go back to an active lifestyle, not the pain that we may feel when engaging in that activity. You know, Raleigh says that, and I was struck by that, and I said, again, it's not that this is true for everyone. I'm not implying that it is, but I bet it's much more true than not. It's fear of failure that keeps us from trying to do something new. It's the same notion, right? It's not hard to apply and maybe extend some of Raleigh's medical mindset to everyday life. And I think that's where some of the insights from this podcast and this conversation are really going to be important. Really what we're talking about is we're talking about the psychology of our lives, right? And maybe it's also a call for some self, some, a bit more self-awareness, but also let's seize control of our lives as much as we possibly can. We know from long history of research in sociology and psychology, the more control people have, the more autonomy people have over what they do, the happier they're going to be. And 
this is just as true, maybe even more true, when we're struggling, when we have to overcome something, when it's even more difficult to feel like we have control or autonomy, that's when it becomes even more important. So it's a really cool, really interesting set of ideas that come from my conversation with Raleigh. He's recently retired from a 30-year career, really devoted to people who have been disabled by chronic back pain. He's um, currently an emeritus professor of orthopedics at the Geisel School of Medicine in Dartmouth College. And I told you a little bit about him uh, earlier as well and all of his various interests from entrepreneurship to uh, athletics to, uh, to music. His new book is called Talking Back, How to Overcome Chronic Back Pain and Rebuild Your Life. And I think it's timely. And especially as you think about it, not only in the context of back pain or pain in a medical sense, but the everyday challenges that we have that we try to overcome or want to try to overcome in our lives as well. So Raleigh Hazard, really interesting. Let's go to the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCAST. It's Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Roly Hazard. Hi there, Roly. Hello. It's good to have you on the podcast. You're also local Upper Valley, Vermont, and New Hampshire for that matter, uh, deep roots, and done a lot of different things. So I think we're going to have kind of a wide-ranging conversation today. And I think the best way to start our chat is maybe to hear a little bit about your background, like you're growing up. So did you grow up in Vermont? Yes, I grew up on a farm in Norwich. In Norwich, Vermont, which is just across the uh, Connecticut River from Hanover and Hampshire, where I am sitting right now as we record this. You were saying before we started recording that you are the eighth Roly Hazard. Is that right? Roland Hazard? I think that's about right. Yeah, my son, Roland Jack Hazard, is the most recent Roland Hazard, but it's a long string going back into the 16 and 1700s in Rhode Island. Most hazards in the country trace themselves back to that family. Wow. Have you done the genealogical research? Oh, yeah. We have big books of all these people. Great characters. Yeah. Huh. Isn't that interesting? So what about the people that made the trip originally? What were they about? Why would they come over? So they were English and they came over and settled in what's, they owned most of South County in Rhode Island. And they were into farming and textiles. They were Tories. (laughs) I'm not sure they had slaves, but they were on the right side of the political affairs back for a long time. Mm -hmm. So they built some businesses down there. Yes. In Peacedale, they built a kind of a utopia, one of the New England textile utopias. A utopia as in a place where workers are treated well? Yeah, yeah. They built a lot of the main buildings, the churches and the museums and so forth in the Peacedale area. And they had, you know, the kids of the workers who worked in the textile mills put on plays and went to the schools that the hazards built and so forth. So. Well, for that era, you know, you use the word utopia, it's probably the right word because working conditions were extremely difficult and probably children were working as well. Certainly that was the case in England at that time. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know a lot of the details about child yeah. labor there, but it sounds like it was a pretty good thing. Interesting. And most of your relatives are still in that area. I'm sure they spread all over the country, maybe other countries, but mostly there. The ones that are still there are in the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're there in spirit. How long have your roots been in Vermont? Since 1955. Okay. So that's really recent in the scheme of what we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My father was the last one left in his generation. His two brothers were killed in the war, and my father saw a lot of battle activity in the war. And when he came back, my mother said he hardly spoke for a year. And they were living in Kentucky, and they just decided to move to Vermont and buy a farm. He knew nothing about farming. 
but it was just trying to like get his pieces put back together. And did you growing up have any experience or sense of the type of trauma that he had gone through as a soldier? No, he never spoke about it. His whole life, he never talked he, about he it. He never did. No. Yeah. And in those days, of course, no one got treatment, I'm pretty sure, afterwards for PTSD and other things like that. You really see it. I mean, you go back and you see what people have gone through. And of course, this is not new. But if you talk about World War II, you talk about maybe it was post-Vietnam that there was some beginnings of understanding of truly what the psychological damage has been for some people. But for most, for a long, long time, there's nothing. And they just have to cope on their own. Did you ever sense that about him? Because he didn't talk about it, but did you sense something or you knew about it from your, your mother maybe sharing something? No, she never talked about it either. All I knew was that his uniforms were up in the closet in the barn. And so I knew that it was real. Uh, but yeah. what I knew about him that in retrospect was probably a product of his war experiences to some extent Mm-hmm. was that he was a pretty quiet guy who worked really hard. I mean, growing up on a farm, I learned a lot about how you work hard all day <laughs> by watching my father. And right. I think that rubbed off on me yeah. in a very good way. Yeah, I mean, you've done so many different things, a very eclectic career, really. Uh, <laughs> so what happened? So you grew up and you went off to school, uh, university. What did you set out to do in the early days? Did you have any idea? I mean, a lot of people don't have any clue what they want to do when they're 18 years old, but did you? Yes. I was very lucky. I was admitted to a special school that the state of New Hampshire runs for kids who are between their junior and senior year. It's run down at the St. Paul School. It's called the Advanced Studies Program. And I got in, and my first choice was second-year German. But a week before I showed up, uh, I got a letter saying there aren't enough second-year German candidates, so you're getting your second choice, which is ancient Greek. So I did that. It got the equivalent of a college year of Greek behind me. And then when I came back to Hanover High School, I went to Dartmouth in the afternoons to take Greek courses there. So by the time I got to Harvard, I was ready to go. And so I was going to be a classics major, which I was. Which you were, yeah, that's interesting. And a lot of people don't know this, but when you live in Hanover, you may very well, as a high school kid, have an opportunity to take a university course at Dartmouth, which is quite a nice thing. Yeah, so that year in St. Paul's, that was a big thing, wasn't it? That changed you. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about kind of your recollections and how it dawned on you that, I don't know if you knew it in real time as things were happening, but how it dawned on you, this is... You know, sometimes you have these experiences and in a sense, you know, you can't go back. You have to keep moving forward in some way. (laughs) Yeah, I think for me that part of it was that I was finally good at something. It was hard not to follow the gravity of that. When you're a kid, a teenager, if you develop a proficiency and you get some respect for that, that's a pretty nice path to follow. So that's what I did. And it turned out to be one of the hardest majors possible at college. Because <laughs> by the time, I think there were 30 of us in my freshman class who were classics majors, and I think there were eight of us left at the end. What made it so difficult? Well, for one thing, especially the way I went through it, by the time I was a sophomore, almost all the people in my classes were graduate students. So the competition and the amount of time people were putting into their studies was pretty tough. And there was nowhere to hide. I mean, most of these classes were, you know, 10 people or less, which was great because I was working with, you know, some of the most respected professors in the world, but I had to work pretty darn hard. And I was a varsity athlete too, so that didn't make it easy. Right. Got it. This point that you mentioned about you finally found something you were good at is so true. 
And I always think for parents to just find anything that a kid is good at, even if they're not the best at it, because to be the best at something is Olympic caliber best or, you know, Harvard professor best, but to just find something that they're really good at and they enjoy it. It actually, I'm connecting some dots from some other things that I've done. I've had different people on podcasts now into season three, and we've talked about passion and work, you know, and so many people tell you, well, you should do what you feel passionate about. I mean, probably more people say that than almost any other option, but there is another option and that is to find out what you're actually good at and then try that. And because you're good at it, you start to develop passion for it. You start to develop a real appreciation and deep enjoyment of it. And it becomes this kind of reinforcing cycle. And I wonder, first of all, whether you think that's true in your own experience, whether it was true at Harvard or, or just more generally, that it's not that passion leads to career, but that any behavior, any actions has the potential to lead to passion that then becomes the career. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that my careers have been pretty eclectic, and this is why. Because I followed initially something that I was good at. And the Harvard Classics Department at that time was very language-based. Philology was the concentration because the idea was if you were going through that major, it would be for the goal of going to graduate school. And then you would get to talk about the ideas, so to speak. So by the time I got to halfway through my senior year, I thought, this is for the birds. I lost interest in it because it was all about language stuff. Uh, Thucydides was a little different because it was so close to what was happening in the Vietnam War that those discussions and classes were really amazing. So I got to the end of college and I just was totally empty handed. And the only thing I could think of that I really liked doing was cooking. So that's what I did. <laughs> you took your Harvard classics degree and you became a chef? I didn't make it to chef. But I did start out as a pot washer, and then I cut up the colds and made it up to sous chef at the Red Lion Inn in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And I did that because I was also admitted to the École Hôtelière in Lausanne. But they said, you have to work for three years, because most of the kids who go there are from hotel families around Europe. And uh, you have to learn French, which I was not very good at. So that was the plan. And then it turned out that I learned so much, and I learned in a way that was completely different from the book learning that I was accustomed to. And I loved it. You know, it's like, it's not like here's a stack of books, come back and take a test. It was like, here's how you peel 40 frozen shrimp because a bus just arrived and they're all ordering shrimp cocktail in 15 minutes. Right. And so you see how to do it and you do it. And I just learned so fast. But the problem was I was also working 12 hour days and, you know, it's pretty dangerous in a kitchen. And the work was, I just thought, I can't do this. This is too hard. <laughs> so I got sick, got the flu. And as I was lying in bed, I thought, you know, it would be amazing to be a doctor and be able to help people who feel like crap like this. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's how you got the idea. By that's the how I got lying in bed. I know exactly where I was. I had a little three by five card. I wrote down jobs and qualities that I thought you'd need to do the jobs. And much to my surprise, because I took one science course in college and no math. So I thought, well, this is weird. And then I called Dr. Mosenthal, who was one of the surgeons here at Dartmouth back then. And I spent a couple of days with him and he was very encouraging. And, you know, he just said, you know, this is kind of nuts because you haven't taken any science courses, but Jimmy Mosenthal, his son, had been my best friend growing up, and he knew me well. And he said, if you want to do this, then you have to work pretty hard. Anyway, so that's what I pursued. So I took all the science courses in one year at UVM, and then I got into the UVM Medical School, and off I went. University of Vermont. Wow. 
That's a very interesting way to go to medical school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, at least my classics background made the vocabulary much easier to master. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No trouble with the Latin, <laughs> the Latin medical terms. That's funny. Right. <laughs> yeah. Before we continue down the path, I don't want to forget about this. You had a very famous grandfather. Could you share a little bit about who he was and why it's worth mentioning him? Sure. I have no firsthand information about my grandfather, whose name is the same as mine, Roland Hazard. But a lot of people in the Alcoholics Anonymous literature and among their people know about him because he was a hopeless drunk and he had been a patient of Carl Jung's. And he. Carl uh, Jung, the famous psychiatrist or. The psychologist, yeah. Psychologist. Yeah, in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So, and at one point, Carl Jung said, you know, you're a hopeless case. And the only way that people can recover from your kind of alcoholism is to basically have a spiritual experience in which there's a higher power. And so he came back to the United States and he read the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, amazing book. William James was amazing. And he was inspired by that and had some form of what in that book is called conversion. And then one of his best friends, Abby Thatcher, was living down in the Bennington area and was arrested, I think, for drunk driving. And my grandfather told the judge that he would take Abby under his wing and take care of him. Just the first kind of sponsor experience that became such a critical part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then Abby went, he got the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and then he got involved with Bill Wilson, and who was one of the, the known starters of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of literature about all this stuff going on. That people say, well, I don't think he actually saw Carl Young for that long and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, these are the basic facts that we know about. Luckily, through all of this, my sister has a lot of firsthand documentation, and she is in the process of writing a book about him. So that hopefully will clarify some things. I don't know how much of the theory and philosophy that he went through will be in her book, but I can't wait to read it, frankly. Yeah, that's so an when, interesting historical fact, you know, from your family. Yeah, and it played out throughout my career taking care of patients in pain in Vermont and New Hampshire because it was quite common for someone who was, came to me as a patient would say, are you related to the RH that's in the Alcoholics Anonymous literature? And I would say, yes. And then we would have a conversation about their alcoholism. That was really, I was a gift to me to have that connection that people were able to then open up and talk about their problems with booze. Yeah, that's powerful. And actually what you're also describing is with a patient, giving them a chance to kind of tell their story, their narrative. And there's a field, maybe you're familiar with it called narrative medicine that specializes in exactly this type of kind of mindset. If you really want to know what's going on in a patient. Let I'm, I'm very familiar story. with that. Yeah. That area. Yeah. In fact, and that's what I eventually sort of went into in this book. In which book? A uh, book that I've written that's going to come out. The, in, the book that we didn't get to yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's cool. So let's see, medical school, and what did you decide to specialize in? So I didn't decide to specialize. I did my residency in internal medicine at Strong Memorial in Rochester. It's a great training program. 
And what happened at the end was I realized that I kind of liked everything. So I didn't specialize. So I was hired right out of residency, if you can believe this, to be the director of the emergency room, which is a pretty big emergency room in the city. But I got a call from people who had known me at UVM who knew I was interested in general semantics and linguistics and the background of problem solving that had become the problem-oriented medical record. And they had put together this thing with Blue Cross Blue Shield and Medicare and Medicaid in Vermont to have, I believe this, this is a 1981. They had put together a single-payer healthcare system for the state of Vermont, which would be based on this problem-solving technique uh, been invented by a guy named Larry Weed, is that all the hospitals and all the practices would have to use this problem-solving system including computerized records, which at that point was pretty clunky. I told the guys in Rochester, okay, I'm not doing the emergency room thing. They were really pissed, but you know, whatever. Because I thought this is something I could really sink my teeth into. So I moved my family back to Burlington. And about 16 days after I got there, Blue Cross Blue Shield pulled out of the single payer idea. And so the whole thing fell apart. Would that have been the first single payer system in America? Yes, the VA system is kind of a single-payer system, but yes, it would have been the first private single-payer system. It was called the Green Mountain Health Plan. What have you thought over the years as you've seen the battles play out, even back to the Clinton era, to obviously Obama, and even more recently with President Biden? Oh, I think a national health care system has always been the only way to go. But it's not a national health care system that I've ever heard anybody describe the way I would describe it. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, partly because the whole education system for medical people would be revolutionized. That would be part of the healthcare system. So that if you were good enough to qualify for medical training at any level, whether you're a nurse or a surgeon or whatever, it would be for free. But also there would be greater work and salary parity. You know, this the idea that a thoracic surgeon makes sometimes you know, seven or eight times what a just as hardworking pediatrician makes is for the mm -hmm. birds. And in fact, with Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you may know, they had salary parity for quite a while after that was begun. And psychiatrists got paid the same as surgeons and pediatricians. The problem with that is when nobody else is playing the same game. That's right the doorbell rings or the email comes or the phone calls and you do, would you like to make 5X your pay, Ms. or Mr. Surgeon? And that's a hard one to give up. I hear you. Absolutely. So here's the thing, though. I'm just giving this as an example of the components of a national healthcare system that I would put into the system that nobody talks about. But anyway, and the same thing would be true with research investment. You know, to be more thoughtful about what we think of now as the NIH, about you know what needs need to be met instead of this gigantic kind of clandestine process where people get funded for all sorts of funny reasons, honestly. Yeah, that is a very complicated thing. But I have to say that, you know, the NIH has been such a driver of innovation. So even with kind of maybe an opaque system, and not to say it couldn't be better, but it's actually having some incredible impact. I have to believe that a lot of the research that eventually has led to these COVID vaccines, some of it had to have been funded through the NIH. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Though so I don't mean to step on the NIH's toes in the way that it probably sounded. I just think that true reform in a national healthcare system should involve education, research, and practice not just, you know, you're going to, with your taxes, pay for your gallbladder operation. Yeah. It's more complicated than that. So after UVM, 
I'm not sure how long it took until you started to really focus on the problem of back pain. Where did that come from, that interest? So the first year that I went into practice, here I was this super well-trained internist, right, mm-hmm. uh, in a general practice. Mm-hmm. And I was hit over the head by how ignorant I was about how to take care of people who had back pain. And so for almost a year, I dedicated Thursday nights. I stayed up all Thursday night reading everything I could get my hands on about back pain. So I read the surgical literature, the chiropractic literature, the osteopathic, you know, all sorts of physical therapy stuff. And I really thought, wow, this is a mess. Nobody knows what the hell's going on here. Mm-hmm. Right. And they all have their belief systems. But the science is kind of bizarre. And there were things that were popping into my mind about how traditional medicine, just pills and shots and surgeries, was only a small piece of the pie compared to what was being practiced out there in the real world. So anyway, I learned how to do manipulation and to do spinal injections, which at that time hardly anybody was doing. And I was noticed, this is a polite way of putting it, by John Freimeyer, who was the chairman of orthopedics back then. This is in the early 80s, who got annoyed by a note that I wrote about one of his patients in which I said that I had done a manipulation with the patient who had a disc herniation and the patient got better. And he came into my office. He wasn't happy to hear the note that you helped the patient get better. Well, he wasn't happy to hear the idea that a manipulation could help somebody who had a disc herniation. Let's unpack that a little bit for okay. non-medical people, including me. So first of all, what is a manipulation? Uh, manipulation is when you use your hands to do something to move a person's, in this case, their spine, in a way to relieve their complaint. Which physical therapists would be doing, for example, for other problems? Yeah. In volume, most manipulations in the United States are performed by chiropractors, but physical therapists are often trained in manual therapy, as it's, they call it as well. And osteopaths also do manipulation. I see. So because it's not science, in quotes, medical science, people don't think it's legit, this manipulation solution or treatment. Yeah, that's been sort of a party line for MDs, medical doctors, that that chiropractors and to some extent physical therapists are not using science. But that's using science in a strange way, I think, Mm -hmm. because chiropractors will tell you they absolutely did. They have all the same science that the surgeons do, right? Mm -hmm. The differences happen in the way people practice. The variety of what you get when you go through the door of a chiropractor's office or a physical therapist's office or an osteopath's or a surgeon's office Mm -hmm. depends a lot more sometimes on who the person is than where they went to school, so to speak, because there's a huge variety of treatments out there for back pain. And there are many belief systems underneath those that pass as science, but the science is actually pretty thin. And those belief systems, some of them are close to standard practice, for example? Very common practice, and they're paid for by insurance. That's another hurdle that you have to get over, is if you keep practicing using techniques that the insurance will pay for, you don't last very long. So back to your example and when you you had your wrist slapped. So you were doing manipulation, which you've now explained. And what was the critique on you then? Was it the mere fact that you did manipulation, or was there something else to it? Because it worked in your example. Yeah. And Dr. Freimore also noticed that my practice was rapidly becoming filled with people who had all kinds of back problems. Many of these patients coming from the surgical practice without getting helped. So he said, you know, there's this group at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas 
who are about to win the Volvo Award, which is the biggest award in the world for back pain research, because they've developed a new kind of rehabilitation that actually seems to help people who have been disabled for a long time with back pain. So let's get on a plane and fly down there and meet these guys. I mean, Frymware was a real innovator and an entrepreneur, which was great for me because he and I became absolutely best friends as we were going through the next 10 or But again, years. he's the one that wrote the note that he said he wasn't so happy. Yeah, he didn't but, write a note. He barged into my office. He barged into your office. at me. <laughs> right. Uh, but then it seemed like he turned around pretty quickly to support you and encourage you. He did. And that was great. That was the best part about our relationship. It was both of us who speak our minds. And he was well, way smarter than me, but we respected each other. And he said, you get on there, we'll meet these guys. So we met them and we hit it off. And so immediately, uh, Frymware hired me in the Department of Orthopedics, which you know, never happens to an intern. And we put together a fellowship at the University of Texas. And I went down there and did my fellowship and learned how to do this. It's called functional restoration, this form of rehabilitation. And I came back and we renovated a school in Burlington and set up the New England Back Center, which became the Spine Institute of New England. And ran, I think, between then and when I retired from Dartmouth in 2018, more than 3,000 people went through these programs. And the treatment you were doing there had, in general, I mean, plenty of exceptions, but greater efficacy than a more standard treatment that involves surgery? Yes and no. It depends on the measurement that you use. If you look at a person who has back pain and only measure their pain reports with questionnaires or whatever, it didn't have that much of an impact on pain reports. However, the major public health problem related to back pain is not the pain itself. It's the disability that people suffer because of the pain. It's the inability to work, to do recreation things, to just do daily activities. Mm. That's what costs us the billions and billions of dollars. I mean, the healthcare costs billions too, but the vast majority of the costs to the American public from back pain is in the disability sector, not in the healthcare. So that said, yes, no question about it. The studies of functional restoration, this form of intensive measured rehabilitation does have the best track record for getting people back so that they have productive lives. Is it still controversial, this whole thing today, among the traditional medical establishment? I would say that where it exists, it's still controversial. But because there have been so many problems getting insurance reimbursement for this kind of care, because most insurance companies in the healthcare spectrum are based on paying for either procedures or interventions that are symptom-based, right? So they pay for shots and pills and surgeries meant to reduce the patient's complaint, but they are not related to disability. So worker compensation and the social security systems, they are based on disability. You know, if you can't work, then your employer is going to get dinged for worker compensation. And social security is a gigantic problem for the United States. This is the disability form of social security. They suffer massively from back pain because once you get disabled or you start receiving social security disability support for back pain, the chances of your ever going back to work for the rest of your life are mm -hmm. tiny. Mm -hmm. And yet the support for you is going to be at the poverty level or below. So just to carry this theme, if you look at the past four or five decades in which 
CAT scans and MRIs and better surgical fusion techniques have been developed, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of modernization of the science of back pain. In those same decades, the cost of medical care and the, especially the cost of disability have risen decade after decade. I've heard from sources that I believe that this march has continued during COVID. It's just that it's not on the first page anymore, mm-hmm. but not that it has been really. It's a silent mm-hmm. epidemic that's waiting to rear its head, I'm afraid. Yeah. Let me ask you about something you said that wasn't completely clear, which is there's the disability. What can you actually do something and do the things you want to do to live a normal life? And then there's the pain. And you were describing how, you know, in the pain metric, it doesn't seem to change much, but in the disability, it does change. How is that possible? If I'm feeling the same amount of pain, all of a sudden I could do stuff that I couldn't do before. People who have pain from a broken ankle and have a cast on, they would not appreciate what I'm about to say. The people I'm talking about who are disabled by their pain are disabled for months and years, right? So the acute model of intervention, fixing a fracture or taking out an infected appendix does not apply anymore because the vast majority of these people don't have a fixable cause for their pain that we can discover. However, what happens over time is that people who have pain that lasts for more than a few months of the usual tissue healing period, have ups and downs with their pain. And over time, they learn to try to avoid things that seem to cause their pain to flare up, right? And in fact, the thing that really drives people's decisions to become inactive is not the pain that they have right now. It's their prediction of what that activity is going to cost. So what evolves from that is what's known in the literature as the fear of re-injury. And the fear of re-injury, or kinesiophobia is the technical term, is what creates most of the disability. And it's breaking that pattern and helping people to reactivate, to regain the flexibility and strength and endurance they need to get back to these active roles. That's what this form of rehabilitation is about. So it's very common for people to say, and the statistics bear this out in all our outcomes research, is that their pain levels didn't change that much. But their ability to do things Mm -hmm. and get their lives back on track, that changes dramatically. So it sounds a little bit paradoxical, but I get it. It's totally paradoxical to people who just know about ankle fractures and headaches because it doesn't ring true for them. Right. So now I'm thinking about me. (laughs) For me, it's knee problems. Torn ACL in one knee, doctor. (laughs) And then the other knee, I don't know what. I'm soon going to go get it checked out, but it's been a lot of pain. If I go back to doing all the things I did before, there is a fear of getting much worse. And the pain itself is terrible. It's manageable. Just your sharing that actually is good to know because it helps you, at least helps me process this in my head and recognize what type of choice is being made implicitly. So you also went on to invent some stuff (laughs) to help people, right? Tell us about that. So one of the things that hit me between the eyes was there was no relationship between the physical capacities, the flexibility, strength, and endurance of people who were going through these programs and whether they could tolerate sitting. And sitting is a big problem for people who have chronic back pain because almost all of them have sitting intolerance, right? So this is a big deal if you're a truck driver or office worker or, you know, assembly line worker. A lot of people sit all day and they have to do that. So we realized that we knew nothing about how to rehab somebody, so to speak, so that they could sit for a long time. 
So I turned my attention from the sitter to the seat. And so what can we do about chairs, right? Well, chairs have been designed for thousands of years with almost no respect for our understanding of the anatomic sources of back pain. I won't bore you with the details, but in short, it seemed to me that we were going to have to do something that created a chair that was easy to make and would solve the anatomic problem. The trouble was there was a big debate about where the pain is coming from in somebody with back pain. Is it the facet joints or the discs or the muscles or what's the problem? But one thing that was very clear was that if you sat in one position for too long, that was a problem. So at the time, I was doing some work with one of the most famous physical therapists in the world, a guy named Robin McKenzie from New Zealand. And we had met and had a lot of shared theoretical background about doing manipulation. And he sent me this pillow that he had designed for putting behind you in your car seat at that point. These are called lumbar rolls. And he sent it to me and I had to drive from Burlington to Cape Cod. And I had this really crappy old Renault with a terrible seat. And I've had a lot of back pain myself. So I'm driving along and I get to Montpelier, from you can imagine this geography is about 30 miles, whatever. And my back started to hurt. So I took the roll and I put it behind my back and felt better. And then after another 10 miles, it didn't feel good. So I took it out and that felt better. So I'm kind of slow. So by the time I got to Boston though, and I had put it in and taken it out a few times, I thought that is the answer. Somehow you have to create that movement, that to and fro movement behind the person's back in a way that they don't even have to think about it. So 10 years later, after inventing this idea and starting a company, it was called Ergometics. We spun it off from UVM, from the University of Vermont. We had 10,000 set seats in United Airlines, and we were selling to National Seating, the biggest truck seat manufacturer. Lazy Boy was building into their home seating and so forth. We were doing business all over the world, buses in Bangkok. It was unbelievable. I got in a little hot water, though, because I was very involved internationally in the research world, and people got upset that had these commercial interests, especially when one of the annual meetings that I hosted in Burlington, our spokesperson was Yvonne Lendl. Remember the tennis player? Yeah, the tennis player, sure. Yeah, so Yvonne showed up at our annual meeting sort of across town and came to the meeting and the TV cameras were there and so forth. So I really got my wrist slapped for that because this is a very juried membership in this research society People are very strict about commercial involvement. So I actually left the university to run the company for a couple of years. Wow, that's interesting because today, I don't know about every university, but so many universities partner with inventors, doctors, engineers. I mean, Dartmouth does that. Stanford is legendary for that. And they see it as a gigantic plus, as a win-win because the university will benefit even financially, not only through reputation other ways. But that wasn't the case at that time for you. Yeah, it could have been the case. We actually used the system that was developed at Harvard for who owns what when you're Mm -hmm. working for a university and you invent something. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you know those rules better than I do. But actually, (laughs) this was really the school of hard knocks. I mean, I didn't get an MBA, but I had to learn so much about patent law. We had to defend a patent in the European Patent Law Office Mm -hmm. in Munich and all kinds of things. Anyway, it was a great couple of years, I got to say. So what happened then? So you were running the company independent of UVM at that point? Yes. And it kept growing, the business? It was going gangbusters, and then September 11th happened. Ah. And our biggest commitment was in aircraft. I won't worry with why, but it was a big commitment. And immediately, 
all of the interior aircraft business just dropped out of sight. Uh, you yeah. probably know that there's a big reduction in the number of planes. The fleets were way too big to begin yeah. with. But what people don't realize is that the tier of companies that supplied the interiors to the airplanes, they took the biggest hit in many ways because a commercial airplane is built to last 20 plus years, but the interiors have to be changed out about every three to four or five years, right? So there's a big business of supplying those uh, mm. change outs, right? Mm -hmm. And typically like our company that wasn't sitting on a ton of cash, that means we had to scramble pretty fast. And so then the next step after that was our relationship with Lazy Boy soured. They were our other big customer. And I decided that we needed to go into the consumer business. This is when I took over as the CEO. Mm -hmm. And I actually fired myself as the CEO to bring in a great guy who had been one of the brains at Select Comfort. That's the pressure bed. Mm -hmm. You can dial in your own yeah. pressure. Remember that. Great guy, Chuck Dorsey. Then he came and just... I mean, days after he arrived was when the Lazy Boy deal fell through. And we'd been riding that horse pretty hard. So it was this amazing timing thing that sort of ran the company into the ground, frankly. Right. Yeah. That must have been difficult because you had built that from nothing into something yeah. significant. It was really hard. Yeah. Could you compare the skill sets that you think are, from your own personal experience, that you think really were the most important as a CEO versus a doctor? Or, you know, things that worked in one environment that may not work in the other? Or what actually transferred over was similar? In some ways, the similarity and the difference is the same thing. It's the ability to listen well and not just sit there sort of gathering wool while the other guy's talking. That's not really listening, but really trying to understand what it's going to take to get to yes, to use an old business school, the Harvard negotiation project of getting to yes, right? So in business, that I think is a critical skill, is trying to get so that both parties, let's say you're going towards a contract, are listening to each other and actually hearing where the other person is trying to get to, mm -hmm. so that you're both trying to get there. I think mm -hmm. that's a really important quality in an entrepreneur. And you got to have passion and you got to work hard and you got to be fearless. But if you can't listen, mm -hmm. you can drive really hard down the wrong road quickly, right? And, and that's the same for a doctor. Yes, exactly. Listening turned out to be the critical thing for me, but I didn't know what to listen for until quite a long time into my career, which is actually what my research slapped me in the face and said, here's what you got to listen to. Right. <laughs> You know, an episode coming up in season three is with Doug Conant, who's the former CEO of Campbell Soup and has been very involved in the leadership space for a long, long time, has mentored many, many people. And he also said listening as one of the single most important things he could think of uh, as a differentiator. But the other thing he said about listening, I want to ask you what you think is not just listening to what people say, but listening to what people are not saying. And I'm particularly interested in that. I mean, clearly you can see how that's important in the business scenario, but as a medical professional also, people don't always know what to say. I could tell you that my knee hurts, but there's lots I might not want to say or not even think about saying. Have you dealt with that challenge over the years? In a typical medical visit, you don't get very long to cut to the chase. And especially in the chronic pain population, you often will have patients who want to talk and talk and talk and talk. This is the main complaint that a lot of physicians have about taking care of people with chronic unsolvable pain is that they're very uncomfortable because they don't know the answers and the person is just going on and it's getting late, right? 
So I learned really through research I can tell you about that what really matters to people is what matters to them in their lives. That's what you got to listen for is what does this person really care about being able to do out there in the real world, right? So when I had medical students and residents with me, I would show them this technique about how to deal with these very complicated patients that I typically saw. So I would walk in and I'd say, I'm, I'm Dr. Hazard. I want to make sure your name is, you know, Edward Stuyvesant or whatever. And uh, where are you from? And they would say, I'm from White River Junction. And I would say, who's at home with you? I said, I live alone, right? And then I would say, so how do you hope your life turns out in the next four to six months? What do you really want to do? And I'll tell you, the way people answered that question told you a lot about that person. If they said, I want to play third base for the Red Sox, that's really different from somebody says, I'm just trying to qualify for social security. And all the decisions that you make are importantly attached to that answer because now you can get on the same page with them and try to get them the result that they're looking for. And it's amazing that a lot of the rigmarole that most people go through trying to solve the patient's pain problem, right? That's the ticket they had to get in the door, doesn't help to improve their quality of life. You know, having another shot, another minor operation or whatever, doesn't necessarily get them back on track. But if you don't know what the track is, you're not going to be very effective in helping that person get what they want. So that's the key question. What do you want and what would you like to see happen in a reasonable time frame? And these little questions about, you know, where do you live, who's at home and so forth, they're disarming because they're the things that any caring person, regardless of whether they're a doctor, would say, you know, who are you, right? And you have to say it in a way that doesn't impose any of your judgment or values on them. You're just asking them, you know, who are you? And then you say, you know, how do you hope this turns out? And I'll tell you, I mean, in conflicts that I have at the grocery store, I can say, how do you hope this turns out? How are we going to get there? Right? Yeah. Not stop yelling at my dog or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, that's a great focus, a great question to be asking. And also those little questions that you just mentioned, it shows that you actually care about someone, at least at some level. And they know you're seeing lots of other people and you're, you know, you got your own life. Everyone understands that. But when you actually not just demonstrate, but actually care about someone, it's amazing what's possible. It is. And I learned this in a very specific circumstance. And that was that I spent three months as an intern at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. And because I was this kind of weird American that nobody knew what to do with, I was assigned to follow the senior registrar. That's the senior training physician in the hospital who had to visit every patient who had been admitted to the hospital that day after hours. So we would go around, and these are open wards with curtains around the beds, right? And his name was Ian. Ian McDowell, I think was his name. And he would go into each curtain and pull it aside and say, my name is Dr. I can't remember his last name. And are you so-and-so? And they would say, yes. And he'd say, well, where are you from? And they would say, well, I'm from Dunfermline. And he would make some connection with that person. He would say, oh, I have an uncle in Dunfermline. Or I love the general store there. You know, just something that was like, I'm a person, you're a person. And then he would cut right to the chase about what the problem was and what the plan was and so forth. And he could see so many people so quickly because he was disarming. 
he could get people to talk like about what really mattered. So, Which is, yeah. And, you know, in life, you do come across people like that that are just great. They make you feel good talking to them. And they know that you're the only person in the world that they want to talk. And we recognize that because actually most people are not exactly like that. So when it happens, but you're talking about doing it or using it really as a practice professionally. I mentioned earlier narrative medicine. You said that was really central to your thinking and your book. Say a little bit more about that. So the person's story is really important. And knowing the story and their goals that come out of that story is a very important way of knowing the person. Uh, there's an often quoted dictum. It's more important to know about the patient with the disease than it is to know about the disease in the patient. And this is what they're talking about, right? And if you know the story and you know what the person really cares about, mm -hmm. the chances of you getting them a result that really matters to them are much better. Now, sometimes it doesn't matter. You know, you have somebody who comes in from a car crash they're unconscious and they have two femur fractures, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to get a lot out of the story. But that is not the way most medicine is practiced. Most people come to get help with symptoms and you're supposed to figure out what's causing the symptoms and fix mm -hmm. it if you can. Mm -hmm. But most healing happens from within, even a laceration. You know, you can sew it up and get the edges together. But the real healing goes on from the person's inflammatory and scarring approach, right? Mm -hmm. So that said, narrative medicine of people telling their stories and being listened to by somebody who is a good listener is really important. The goal achievement model that I sort of developed out of my research is very much based on this story and goal setting and mm -hmm. getting people what they want. Yeah. I could definitely see that having a lot of applicability. Almost exactly a year ago on the podcast, my guest was Dr. Rita Sharon from Columbia University, who's really one of the innovators in the entire narrative medicine field and has developed at Columbia and has helped create it in a lot of other places. So it's quite interesting to hear you talk about this because it's absolutely consistent with some of the things she shared as well. Now, back to your book. Why did you write the book in the first place? When I stopped practice, I retired two years ago. I was the director of a rehabilitation program. And over the 30 years of running these programs, I took care of about 3,000 people. And a part of these programs were these lectures that developed over the years about why do people come disconnected when they have pain? How to deal with doctors? How to deal with drugs? What does relaxation technique have to do with anything? What is wellness all about? And initially, these lectures were very top-down didactic. You know, they're very authoritarian. You know, don't smoke, don't eat too much, you know, and, um, yeah, yeah. you know, buck up. And we used all sorts of psychological techniques as well, CBT and different forms of locus of control therapy and so forth. And what happened over time was that a lot of the patients really didn't like these lectures. And so guess what happened? started listening on each of these topics like well what do you want to know what do you really have questions about and out of these questions over 30 years we slowly realized that for instance take drugs the initial drug lectures were all about uh, you know here are the chemical formulas here's where these drugs work in the brain here's what they do and blah 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 mm -hmm. and it was all correct and very you know very well thought out and so forth but it didn't have any connect with the patients so finally started saying well what do you want to know about drugs and that phase was not good either because people say well, you know how do you answer that 
you're asking us, what do we want to know about something we don't know about? Right? It's like, what? So then finally, this is another form of listening. I said, well, you have tons of experience with drugs, right? Personal experience. So let's write it all up on the board, you know, all the drugs you've taken. And there would be like six to eight people in these classes, right? And the board would be full of names of all these drugs because everybody tried all these things. And, you know, what's good about them? In green, I'd write, you know, the positive effects. And then in red, what kind of side effects did you have? There's always a lot more red ink than green ink. And also people would say, well, there's something weird here. This person over here, Joe, you know, he takes like five milligrams of oxycodone a day. And it sort of snows them, right? And I'm taking, you know, 100 milligrams a day. So what's the deal with that? Out of this came the fact that the science of prescribing drugs for people who have pain with no clear pathophysiology is a crapshoot. Only person who knows whether they're getting side effects or getting positive effects is the person who's taking the drugs, right? So embedded in the goal achievement model, suddenly now the conversations between patients and doctors are very different. They're not like the doctor is waiting for the patient to ask for opioids at the end of the visit. They're like working together to say, what is going to get you the result that you're looking for? And that's a very different conversation. So as a result, in my own practice, I rarely talked with people about opioids, even though I was seeing, quote, the worst of the worst of the chronic pain patients, right? Just an example. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about this approach. And yes. So the seven chapters in the book are the seven lectures that evolved over 30 years. And in each chapter, we go through one of these topics that turned out to be what really mattered to people. And in each chapter, interspersed throughout the chapter are quotes from a mosaic patient. These are So each patient is a mosaic of mm -hmm. several patients, right? And what kinds of things they would actually say. Right. And so the book, we're here in summer of 2021. The book came out quite recently. That's exciting. Is this the first book you wrote, by the way? Yes. Yeah. The publisher is releasing it on May 7th. Yeah, because we're out here in June now, so it's out a month, and that's exciting, and I'm going to have to make sure that I read it because I love the philosophy of what you're talking about. And of course, the fact that it might actually be helpful for anyone's life is even a bigger benefit. Is there any particular tips you can give listeners that have back pain, for example, on what they can do? Because as you know better than I or just about anyone else, and I've seen this from some friends, they go from one to another, right? They go from one helper, one doctor, and no one can solve it because you said it yourself, you know, it's not specified what the underlying cause, which is really actually odd to me that we can't actually figure out deep down. <laughs> that part, I don't quite, I understand it. I respect it. But I feel like in 2021, we should be better than that. We should be able to come up with some formula, with some algorithm, with some genetic mix that helps us. Maybe we will, right? As genetic testing, you know, RNA research <laughs> and DNA research picks up. But is there something that you can recommend that might be helpful for a lot of people? Yes. So first of all, most people don't need this advice because 90% of people who have an acute episode of back pain get better, almost no matter what they do. In fact, most of the good randomized controlled trials show that doing almost nothing is not much different from all the interventions we know about. Which, by the way, means that whatever you do or whatever your doctor did, there's a 90% chance it's going to help. And so therefore you do a cause effect and you are certain that that's the reason, even though it was a random thing. 
That's right. Unless you do a randomized controlled trial yeah, in which right. the control group does just as well. And that's pretty much the history of randomized controlled trials for acute back pain. The difference is, think of a fracture. If you break a bone six to eight weeks later, there are exceptions, but most of the time the bone is great, right? And the person is up and running around, that's fine. That's the experience that most people have with acute pain. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about pain that lasts for more than a few months past the usual tissue healing period of a fracture or a sprain or other injuries that we understand. Those people, the chances of finding a fixable cause are small and they vanish with every month that goes by. The advice that I would give to those people, and there are millions of Americans who unfortunately are in this fix, be thoughtful about what you really care about, what you really want to be able to do with your life, and try to have conversations with your practitioners about how are you going to get there, right? So you're not just talking about another facet block or not necessarily a fusion or some intervention. You're trying to figure out how am I going to get there? So, for instance, the drug conversations in that context are very different from if you're just like, we're just talking about pain and how much drugs you're going to get, different conversation. So that's what I would say is if you can retrain your focus on your life and what's important to you to be able to do rather than this constant pursuit of fixing the pain, that can keep you out of a lot of primrose paths. Yeah, that is great advice, Rowley. Thank you. We've been going over an hour, which I always amaze how the time flies by. So I have one last question for you, and it's my final question for most people, because it's about advice. You've been providing some advice, of course, but this is advice about, I don't know, about life. And in particular, it's advice you'd give yourself. If you can magically go back in time to when, say, you were 21 years old, and you see the 21-year-old Rowley Hazard, you walk over to him and you lean over and you say, there's one thing you want to know. There's one thing you want to do. There's one thing you don't want to do. There's one thing I've learned over the years that you didn't know when you were 21 or you couldn't possibly know. It would be this. What would you say? I used to ask this question of patients back when I was an intern, and I got the answer that I'm going to give you yeah. uh, from a guy who was dying from a terrible infection and leukemia. I closed the doors behind me and I said to this guy, Jimmy Spolino was his name. And I said, so if you were going to give me advice about, you know, what I should do with my life, what would you say? And he said, don't work for somebody you don't trust. And I made a bunch of mistakes through the years by not taking Jimmy's advice. <laughs> <laughs> don't work for someone you don't trust. Yeah. And the flip is true too. If you're an employer and you have people working for you, make sure you're trustworthy. Rally, it's great advice and a powerful story about where you got that advice as well. Rally House, thank you so much. Good luck with the book. It's great to meet you and talk to you. Now that we've done the podcast, we both live not that far apart. We're going to end up bumping into each other all over the place. That's just the way it works. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. 
If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.